Welcome to the All Heart Podcast. My name is Noni Lamar. And my name is Thea Monier, and this is a podcast that's all about joy and pleasure. 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 We have found a million ways to say that. Pleasure. And there's still a million more. <laughs> I, I, I love sex, you, you know? Just, I just looked at your face <laughs> as you said it. I was like, where are we going? What just happened here? When you look at somebody and you see that they have a lot of kids, that should tell you something Clearly. about them. Clearly, there's a love of sex involved. That should tell you something about them. <sighs> Speaking of something about people, <laughs> we thought today we would tell you a little bit more about us. Because we realized we haven't been very intentionally self-disclosing. We've self-disclosed. Yeah, but, but we want to open our hearts today. This open heart is us opening our heart and just doing a casual bio. Yeah. So you know a little bit. More about us. Yep. And Noni's going to start. I did it first. <laughs> did you see how that worked? You was coming for me and I saw it. <laughs> I always do that to you. Okay, so yeah, what's up, y'all? My name is Noni. That is my actual real name. People ask me all the time if it is a nickname. No, it is not. <laughs> oh, it is not. That it is, is the my whole name. name. That is my name. N-O-N-I. Shout out to the four-letter names. They count. <laughs> we do both we have. We both have four-letter names. They do count. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's not a nickname. My name means a gift from mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. My mother wanted to name me Winona. My dad said no. My dad wanted to name me Cecile. My mom said no. But shout out to my producer, Cecilia. Thanks for coming through. <laughs> Came through somehow anyway. So, Yes, my name is Noni. I was raised all over the great state of California. My parents were separated when I was an infant, maybe six months or so. And my mom became a single mom. I grew up with my grandmother, who I've talked a lot Mm -hmm. about on this podcast, my auntie and my mom. And um, around 10 years old, I moved into a house just with my mom. And then I became a latchkey kid, and I started taking care of myself and doing my own laundry and mm. doing my own cooking, and <laughs> that's when I started writing. Um, there was nobody around. I didn't have all my cousins, and I grew up in a house with all of my cousins. My stepdad also had two children. My parents started dating when I was seven, so I was around them for most of my life, so I have two stepbrothers. Three half sisters mm. and a bunch of cousins who were like my siblings. So by the time I was like mm, in the fifth grade or so, we moved to Santa Barbara and I was living alone basically. My mom was in grad school and I started writing. Mm. That's how I kept myself company. I was an avid reader. I had been reading since I was two years old and reading, reading. And there was nothing left to read. So I started writing. Mm-hmm. And that kind of has been my outlet my whole life of yeah, just for sure keeping me company and getting my feelings out. And yeah, it's a really big part of who I am. I don't often describe myself as anything. Um, people ask me what I am religion wise, what I am, my career, what like I'm just, you know, I call myself like a love groupie or a storyteller <laughs> mm-hmm. or Umi is pretty much enough. That's what my children call me, another name for mother. But yeah, I started writing around that time. I've always done a lot of music. 
a lot of dancing, a lot of theater. I went to UCLA um, after I went to about 13, 14 schools. I went to a ton of schools. Mm. I went to UCLA and I found a home there and I started becoming a political student activist Mm. and really organizing around um, racial disparity in higher education and the prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm. So those became big passions for me. I discovered Mumia at 17 years Mm. old. And I just really went into, like, abolition work Mm -hmm. really early on in my life. And I did that work for a long time in various ways. And I still did up until this past year, working with Black Lives Matter. Hmm. Yeah. I've always kind of been the same person. Like, Mm -hmm. super... I, I started a theater company, for instance, when I was around 21, where it was called the 11th Hour Theater Company, and it was an intersection between the political and the spiritual. So Mm -hmm. that's been my passion for a long time, like how the spiritual and political meet. Um, Mm. In the last, maybe since I left BLM, I've kind of like taken a big, 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 big step back from politics. You know, you'll probably not hear me chime in as much when we're talking about decolonization because I'm just... Just super burnt, burnt out. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> sure. just super burnt out on, um, particularly on racial politics. Mm-hmm. Um, very much burnt out on gender politics, and I'm really searching and reaching for something new, in terms of really shifting and changing this world mm-hmm. in a way that's outside of identity markers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I respect the work. I still continue to do that work, mm-hmm. but the way in which I talk about it is much more leaning toward the lens of like an Adrian Marie Brown with like pleasure activism. I want to feel good mm-hmm. as a, as an activist. So I was mm-hmm. a trained organizer. I was trained as a student organizer. I was trained by folks that grew up with Panthers that grew up with Steve Biko. All mm-hmm. of my mentors were incredible men that were organizing in the seventies, eighties, nineties. So that's like largely my background. I have three kids um, two boys, a girl, ages eight, almost six, two and a half. I've been with my partner on and off forever <laughs> <laughs> for a really long time. We met when I was really young, and we start, decided to start a family about 10 years ago and like be in a committed, loving relationship. And what else? I write scripts, and I have great representation for that and I direct I went to school for directing actually and I'm planning on making a film this summer I've been working on a record since last summer I'm just a really Mm -hmm. creative um constantly producing human being so I think that's I mean did I miss something I mean there's a we would fill up an entire, <laughs> we're, we're giving you all the cheat sheet version today because really we could do an entire episode on Noni, an entire episode on me. And, For sure. And that would be, maybe one day we'll do that. For sure. But to know me is to know that I'm a person who has never um, had like one home. I've traveled all over the world. I've always been a person who's been entrepreneurial and I've started lots of different kinds of businesses, whether it be theater companies, podcasts, newspapers. I was writing a newspaper 
when I was about seven years old and, and distributing mm-hmm. it in my neighborhood on like paper bags. Mm-hmm. Like this is just the kind of person mm-hmm. I've always been this person. I've always decided I was going to be creative. I was going to share that, mm-hmm. you know, what you see of me on social media is probably not even 1% mm-hmm. of kind of like experiencing who I am as an artist, right. a creative, or even as a person. So I'm much more like maybe like old school in terms of experiencing my art as you experience it, as you experience it instead of like me talking and discussing it very much. But I've been very successful in every endeavor that I've kind of put my mind to, whether that be traveling to South Africa to do intercultural exchanges and art things or working with studios to create like digital content or going on tour with like Grammy award winning producers. Like I've just had like this really excellent life. And right now I'm just focused on having a really clear balance between family and creative work and really trying to marry them. So they're not in competition Mm -hmm. with one another, but that they're feeding one another and that, that, that my life as a mother and my life as a partner and my life as a person, a daughter, like family and, and a community member is as intricate and dynamic and interesting to me as my life is as a creator, you know? That's it for now. For now. That'll be it for now. Um, this is actually harder than it seems. As you were it doing is. it, I was like, this is kind of hard. Okay. It is. Um, so my name, my full name, my birth name is Thea Monier Griffith. Thea means goddess, like Theo is for theology, God. And Monier, I later found out in my life, because I thought it was made up for most of my life, um, actually means the spirit who gives. Um, Which, if you know me, you know that that's a huge theme in my life is... um, I can't hold water in the sense of, like, as soon as I have something, I'm giving it away. Mm-hmm. In fact, the lesson I'm learning now is on how to receive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was born in Inglewood. Okay. Always up to no good. Right. I bang hard for L.A. Anybody who knows me, because I go super hard for the West. And I'm so Inglewood when you get to know me. <laughs> um, born in Inglewood. Um, my parents, my father, I've talked about is from Panama. My mother is from Maryland and, uh, both tried to make their way out here. Thank God. Cause I literally am so LA. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, I love being by the water. I love the sun. And apparently that's the climate of my people. Cause Panama, water and sun, Barbados, water and sun. Um, so I'm the oldest of, um, of, I actually have a sip of, Two siblings. Um, my sister and I grew up in the same home, and I have a half-brother who's our younger brother. My sister and I are four years apart, and my younger brother, I think we're 12 years apart. Mm. Um, and we did not grow up in the same home, but he's like a super balance between me and <laughs> my sister. He parties like my sister, but he plans like me, I think, in some <laughs> ways. So um, we really um, appreciate him. And um, so... Really grew up during the time of, you know, the Cosby Show, post-trials and shit. 
And I mean, before, <laughs> before pre-trials and shit. And like different world, you know. It was a great time to be a black kid. You know it, what I'm saying? It was it a great was. time to be a black kid. Like Ma- there was Martin, so much going. Yeah, Martin. there was like so much going on. Saturday morning cartoons. In living color. All the things. You know, yes. living single. It was yes. a great time. We're definitely 90s. Children. Yeah, I definitely love that. The music, which is a great time. And so I really remember a lot of that being very influential, um, having great, great friendships. I have, anybody knows me, I have friendships from like that are as old as me, pretty mm-hmm. much, like maybe four years younger than me, mm-hmm. my friendships. Um, and they're a really big cornerstone of my life. Friends are a very important part of my life, which is why, I mean, I know a lot of people, but, um, and I, I technically, I think I have a lot of friends, but they're friends' friends. Like I've known them for a very long time. Yeah. We've had this discussion. Um, yes, and we will continue to. We'll continue to. So, you know, I had, it's kind of the opposite. I didn't move much at all. Like, we lived in the same place till I was eight um, in Inglewood, moved to a bigger house in Inglewood when I was eight. Um, but my parents' marriage began to really have a lot of super big problems um, from eight on. And... Um, that really changed a lot of things in my life and things that I think I spent a lot of my late 20s, early 30s unlearning and unraveling and accepting and forgiving and all those good things. Um, But it did get complex, and so there became this sort of duality um, of what was happening at home and, and what was happening at school, and I think for a person like me who's already a sun sign, I'm already a Leo, mm-hmm. um, and already type A and likes to get things done, be a perfectionist, it sent a lot of that into hyperdrive because my successful spaces were outside of, of the home. And so um, that felt like the way by which I could survive right. is by doing really well in things outside of the home. Right. And that's something with me now that I'm still unlearning. That, I, I think that that's something we really are so much alike. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's good to remember, like, we were both, like, very high-performing mm-hmm. um, students, mm-hmm. like, in in school. Yeah. You know, and really, like, got... I know both of us have received a lot of our... Uh, I don't want to speak for you, but I think I can. Um, <laughs> you can. But, like, self-worth coming from... Yeah, accomplishments. Accomplishments, mm-hmm. you know? For sure. For sure. And a lot of and a lot of um, having to grow up, having to, like, mature. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so... You know, there's a lot to that we'll do when we do it the episode one day. Um, so, um, but, you know, my friends were definitely solid and um, things of that nature. It gets really hazy for me around that part when I think about it. But moving on, I went to parochial schools most of my life, Good Shepherd Bighorns in Inglewood, and then I went, it went all the way to eighth grade. Then I went to Bishop Montgomery and Torrance, which was a culture shock because I hadn't gone to school with white people at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really just black folks where I went to school. And then a few Latino people were sprinkled in. I remember thinking my friend, one of my best friends, um, she's half Filipino, half black. And I was like, it must be so lonely for her. They're like the only. That's so crazy because I went to the opposite kind of 
education. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, it must be so. I told my mom, they're like the only Filipinos in like the <laughs> world. I feel like they were the only Filipinos in the world, you I, know, because your world is so I small. I went to like, when I went to the schools I went to, I went to find the Filipinos because I was like, this is close This is close enough again, right? Like, and then we that? go to Bishop Montgomery. It's like, hello, Filipinos. I was like, where's y'all been? She's been lonely over here, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, go to this school and it's it's diverse, but it's, it's, you know, it's in a white space very much. And my first time really having to, I think that's when I got like my first dose of feeling like that radical. It's also when the OJ trial happened and like a lot of shit was going down, right? So like in elementary school was the Rodney King and then the OJ thing happened when I was in high school. I remember them putting us on alert like about the verdict and the overreaction of the staff and the faces on the... It was just crazy, right? That you remember these different moments. But it was like, that's when I think race consciousness entered my mind that's, um that's i'm just kind of reflecting uh, sorry to interrupt no it's but fine like you you saying that it's like i was politicized so early and i became so race conscious so early because mm-hmm. i was so isolated mm. and so i was i mean and i was insulated i had like blackness everywhere exactly yeah. and so i was always kind of one of a few mm-hmm. and so it was a constant like i remember from the time of like fifth grade of mm-hmm even earlier, like constantly like advocating for myself, yeah. advocating, yeah. no, this is black literature. And my yeah. mom is a, was a professor of African-American studies in mm. um, drama. So I was always like, this is my culture. I, I was mm-hmm. like wearing like African, oh, there's a hawk outside of our window. It's my spirit animal. <laughs> oh, wow. That's beautiful. <laughs> wow. That's beautiful. Yeah, okay, go go ahead. So that's when you became more radical. Well, it's when I... I'm, I was... Same thing. Early reader. My first word was little. Because uh, my dad used to read Little Engine That Could or one of those things. And um, so, big reader. Big, big reader. And so I remember reading the autobiography of Malcolm X very young. Um, and, like, before high school. And that... I w- okay, so I think race consciousness in terms of other people happened in high school. My first race consciousness, though, was being in an Alpha Beta grocery store, which they don't make anymore, mm-hmm. and walking up to this white lady and saying, hey, like, Grandma. It was the first time I understood the concept of Grandma. None of my grandparents were here mm-hmm. in L.A. And so my mom was like, oh, no, bitch. <laughs> You's on a plane because you got a black-ass grandma that you need to meet. And so I got, I started being shipped back east to Maryland every summer to spend summers with my grandmother and my great-grandmother, which I really, really loved, and my grand, all my family back there. And um, I came back, and I felt hoodwinked because I was like, like, I was, you know, fair skinned. So I was like, you know, when you look at dolls and things for, like that when you kid. For the record. I'm just gonna say it for this one time. I'm never gonna say it again. For the record, she but, you just know, as a kid referred to herself <laughs> as a light skinned person. I, I, this is like the In one fact, time you're gonna hear the this. word fair. I, because I didn't want to use the word light. <laughs> Literally there's not many alternatives. But I was sitting there like, you know, because when you're a kid and you think color, you think crayons. Right. And so I just ran to somebody who at the time was the closest in proximity to the, to the crayon color I thought I would be. My mom was like, that shit is a wrap. <laughs> um, but I came back and I felt tricked, right? And I remember I, um, somebody, because my mom always bought me black dolls, but somebody must have got me a white doll. And I had this white doll. And I remember I was, no, it was also when I had my first racist experience. It was back east. And I was at a pool 
why does racist shit always go around at pools? I don't know. That's a question white culture has to ask itself. But, but it was at a pool, and the little girl, and this is why, you know, when you and I talk and stuff, I'm always like that, what we talked about on the, the episode before about white women in the 40%. Right. Like, none of that shit shocked me because my first racist incident was with a white woman, you know, and, mean, and a white little girl. And so, I mean, she was like, the, the white women in my family were the ones right. that were terrorized. So I was just like, no passes. <laughs> and so, little girl said a racial slur. The, the mom was like, not correcting it, was just like going on about her life. I walked out, and then she's like, oh, no, we don't say that. And I'm like, bitch, I'm at eight years old, and I know that kid didn't pick that shit up today, you know? So after that, I was just like angry about mm. that. And I remember coming home taking the clothes off my white doll and giving them to my black doll and being like, bitch, you out, right? So that was my first, like, racial identity experience. But then, like, in terms of the world, it was more so in high school. And I I was involved. I wasn't, like, I I always had a crew. I guess now, I don't know. I don't know if people would describe us as a clique because we weren't, like, exclusionary, like, we were cute and you're not. It wasn't that. They just knew we were super tight. We had been together since, like, elementary school you know so we were all tight our parents knew each other all that and so it was really great um having them and I think it allowed we still all had individual identities we made new friends but we always stayed really close which I thought it was like such a healthy group I don't know it doesn't happen much apparently that's what I hear um (laughs) and anyway I got involved I did like took over Black History Month because it was trash and did things like that but it wasn't supercharged for me it wasn't something that took you know from me, it was something that just fed it, and I didn't feel like overtaxed by it. Um, mm. So I don't know where that came from, um, but it got choppy around. Like my parents' stuff was really hitting the fan, and I had to apply for colleges. I was a great student, but didn't have a ton of information around applying to colleges and a lot of guidance. So I applied and got accepted at a lot of different schools. Some were offering better packages, but I wanted to go to USC mm-hmm. because I was a kid and USC looked like right. big shit. And it was a huge mistake because financially, that was just like a disaster. Mm-hmm. And um, I became really depressed because I think school was my way out of the chaos of the yeah. home. And then when that fell apart, I didn't have a backup plan. Apparently, my backup plan was to become a poet because this is literally how I found the poetry lounge. Um, it should be noted here that this is where me and Thea met. This is this is where our lives <laughs> begin to intersect <laughs> um, because I started reading at the poetry lounge and it felt like, you know, the first time you go to the poetry lounge, it feels like magic. Like you found yeah. a tribe, a hidden tribe of people yeah. who are creative and just like free in these different ways. And so I was there every week and I began performing. Things moved pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. I began uh, performing different venues. I got picked up by Deaf Poetry. And that part of my career and life began to take off. That's where I met my first husband. That's where I met so many of the friends that I have now. Yeah. Um, and things just moved really fast after that. Had my babies, my my two girls. And this is where we had a group around this time. We did have a rap group. So Normally I was friends this. with her first husband before I was friends with Thea. So mm. I had actually met actually actually met another member of that group first. Mm. I met him organizing in college. I don't know if you know that. That I met mm. him at a. I I used to organize huge. Um, uh, like meetings mm-hmm. of all the black student unions, African student unions mm-hmm. in the whole state. Mm. So I was like external PR basically. Mm-hmm. 
and I put together these big meetups of, mm-hmm. I'm still doing the same type of shit today, right? right. So I was producing. I didn't mm-hmm. know I was a producer at this right. age, right. but I met one of our group members there. And then from- Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah I met him there at one of those meetings. And, and then you met my ex. Yep. And through then him. Me. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and we're met- still standing. We're <laughs> still standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, we had a group. It was great we lived working together. in this group. We lived together. That Be- was the, the hard part. <laughs> because you really couldn't say an idea around Thea without Thea making it actually happen in real life. So if you're like, mm-hmm. we should be, a, you know, bands do really great when they live together. Thea's going to find listings. We lived in the South Bay. I remember no We one- lived in Car- Carson. Yeah, nobody wanted to come see us. It, was, it seems far to LA folks. But <laughs> now um, everybody's moving out there because it's actually no, affordable. It's actually affordable. But in the beginning, it wasn't super. It wasn't. A, anyway, we won't go down that path. This is another episode. But, but I did love. That was the first time I really, really got to create with Noni. Before we did that group, we had a little mini version of that group, Urban Poets. <laughs> Do you remember that, Noni? And then it, it became it the bigger group, a big hip-hop rock band. That we will not name. We will not name. However, I will say this, and I will, I will always say this. That group was amazing energetically on stage. Like, we yeah. slayed yeah, shows. Really we would do battles of the bands. Yeah, had, really and when group. the chemistry was on point, yeah. we could have so much fun. Yeah, that group, that group could have really... Gone. Administratively, shit was... It was a shit yeah, show. Yeah. It was that, a shit show. That group had a lot of potential to be exceptional. Yeah, it really, really did. But, so, but there was just a lot of... There's a, <laughs> we had a lot of personality. It was a lot of personality. And not a lot of cooperation. Yeah. I mean, I just think that, yeah. 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 So there we go. Um, they taught us how to rap, though. Yeah. We were poets. <laughs> we, you were, know, we, were we poets. were straight up writer poets. But we were really amazing. And what I loved is that as the two female representations in the group, our styles were so different Very. that it allowed for like this beautiful different type types of feminine energy to exist i I can't say that much i I can't say that i'm i'm done with the mic you know what i'm saying we're not done (laughs) because we spit hot fire we spit hot fire them verses was great our verses was great we worked hard on those verses but then you got remarried i did get remarried so um got divorced first so y'all know i'm not a polygamist I mean, no, hey, if you no are shame. Do your thing, do your shame. Mm-hmm. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. <laughs> um, I, I literally can't do it because <laughs> I need space. Right, right. <laughs> but I remarried. I um, actually went to, back to school while I was previously married. Got my degree in um, marriage family therapy. Did my hours. Started working with nonprofits, which I loved. Um, if, if, if that shit paid, I could do that. <laughs> more, mm. but I really loved it, and um, I love, love, love working with families. I love working with our families. I love working with mm. our people and people who are from marginalized spaces. I find so much joy and creativity in therapy and mental health work with that, with those populations, much more than I do with like more affluent, um, less marginalized populations. Right. Um, so I love that work, and I've continued to develop in that way and continue to make it my own and continue to like challenge that field. Um, got remarried. Well, met, met, my, met Mark and um, felt like the son, mm. the son returned 
to my life. Um, and when you, if you ever see Mark, which you will, I'm sure, if you haven't seen him on my stuff already, Mark has a hell of a smile. You literally feel like the, the <laughs> sun is beaming on you when he smiles. Um, and just so much healing came through that love and continues, continues. I always think like, oh, I'm the, I'm the more this person. And then he's like, with a quiet way, he just, I'm like, oh, no, actually, I think he's the more that person. Like, he's mm. so nurturing. He has such a big heart. Um, he's, we're, we're similar and we're different, but he's wonderful. And um, he brought with him my daughter by choice, um, who has really, we're supposed to be connected spiritually, like spiritual mother and daughter. Um, mm. And a, a lot of my need to anchor my spirituality to dock somewhere came through my love and work for her mm. um even more than my own biological daughters who like I think there wasn't a natural way of doing that but with her there was we needed this bridge and and she needed something for me that was different than biological um right. and it required me to go more in depth spiritually um and so that's where we are today we are we're we are a blended family with I have almost 16 year old that I have to start teaching how to drive Lord help me I know you were here from the beginning of the babies um my second one is 14 now oh my god and then my daughter by choice is turning 12 this year we have a full house with a dog named Riley (laughs) and um we are really really moving into a very peaceful harmonious and successful part of our life together of building that life together it was choppy for a minute we went through stuff with um, separating parents and different parents in different homes. It's, it's tough to balance a lot of that stuff. But I think, you know, love lifted us for sure. I think, like, if y'all hear stuff from our stories that you want us to go deeper into, like for on sure. separate episodes, like whether that be, like, blended families mm-hmm. or that be um, Catholicism. What not like, to do in a hip-hop band. <laughs> what not to do in a hip-hop band. Um, we actually have never done any episode on parenthood, on motherhood. Right. Um, anything like that, just let us know. But we wanted to kind of tell you just a little bit more about us so you kind of have some context of who you've been listening to for <laughs> a year. Who like, are these people? <laughs> and we're so grateful that you are listening to us. We ask that you share this episode via text with a friend or you share another episode that you really love with a friend share it on your stories on instagram share it on facebook we don't really be on facebook huh no and i forgot to say i'm a writer thea got like mad novels y'all i write novels i have a wonderful agent shout out to jim in new york oh my god i'm like noni i think what you said is correct what you see about us on social media is probably like literally one percent. We're not even super. Well, you are. You like you love the gram, but mm-hmm. we're we're more in person people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there was no way you would know this unless we talked about it right here. Not at all. Most of my close friends don't even know what I do for a living. I also do a lot of casting casting mm-hmm. work. So. There's just so much. There's we have so much to be to experienced, I think, which is why the podcast is great. They get to experience us. Maybe that's more important. I think so too. Well, thanks y'all for listening. We appreciate you listening to us talk about ourselves. <laughs> or like however long this was. Thank you. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.